My name is Pastor Daniel. I'm one of the three lead pastors here at Resurrection Church, and we are, uh, oh man, we're, we're in the holiday season. We're finishing up some stuff. I, I want to say a couple more words about this devotional that I, I'm, I'm very encouraged about. Um, the job of pastors and elders in a church is to equip the saints for works of service. And we get that wrong in American church all the time. This idea that the job of the pastors and elders is do the work of service, but that's, that's not what the Bible says. And uh, every one of you has uh, spiritual gifts that were bestowed upon you at the moment of salvation when the Holy Spirit regenerated your heart and is indwelling you, granted you, bestowed upon you spiritual gifts that the Bible says is for the edification and the encouragement and the building up of the body of Christ, which is believers that come together to do life together, not just to encourage one another, sometimes to transform one another through requiring patience. But every one of you has spiritual gifts that were intended to be put to use for kingdom work, to, to, to grow the body. And, and so you're, you're holding a family devotional today, if you picked one of these up, that was written by non-staff members, young families in the church, uh, families of young children who are changing diapers and chasing toddlers and pulling their hair out and writing devotionals. Because that's what we do as believers in Christ, not just staff members, not just ordained ministers. What we do as believers in Christ is we find opportunities to put our spiritual gifts to use for the growing up, the edification, the encouragement of the body. And so that is really encouraging to me because our job is not just to help equip here at this church, it's to find opportunities. It's to try to create environments and opportunities for you to put your spiritual gifts to work. Now, your job is to find opportunities, to be open and sensitive to opportunities to put those gifts to work, to share the gospel, to make an impact for the kingdom and people's lives. And our job is to keep trying to create spaces for you to do that. And so um, I highly encourage you to pick one of those up. Um, we're gonna continue to try to find ways to produce content through your gifts because it's important. Uh, we're in a, a series on relationships, and um, it's just, it's been a really, really good season in our church. I love the holiday season. I absolutely love the holidays because of all the different family time and the stuff that's going on. And uh, it, it is interesting that we're in a series on relationships right around the holidays because the holidays is when we have a spike in domestic abuse and we have a spike in the number of times the police have to, are called out to houses for domestic issues because suddenly family gets together and it's weird that family has a lot of problems. <laughs> No, none of you? Okay, just me. It's fine. Um, and, and, and again, you know, some of this we can look at in different ways. You can look at this in a very positive, optimistic way. You can look at this in a negative way. There are things in your life around uh, your family and around relationships that are very positive, even sometimes in the darkest of circumstances. And it's uh, our job through a lens of the gospel to look at our lives and see how the gospel has impacted each of these relationships in all these areas of our life. Last night, uh, my, my, my youngest is my son, uh, Quentin, 
And Quentin has this thing that he does now. This is new. He calls it a warm-up. And so what he does is he goes and he sits right next to the fire until his back gets really, really hot. And then he runs over and he jumps on you and he lays on you to warm you up. It's phenomenal. It's phenomenal. I wouldn't trade it for anything. And yet uh, family and, and relationships, close intimate relationships, can also be some of the most hopeless, disastrous, painful relationships in our lives. So both sides of that coin. And what we have been talking about in this series, this is week eight of this series, Ephesians 5.21 through 6.9, is how the gospel impacts or should impact every single area of our life. Every relationship in our life should be changed because of the gospel. And if it's not, we actually have a problem. And it was so interesting because we're in the most practical part of the book of Ephesians. The first three chapters of Ephesians are all uh, doctrinal. They're about these, these truths, these timeless truths about God and about Jesus and about our Heavenly Father and about salvation, about redemption, about what comes to, sto- is to store for us. And, and, then, and then you get to the end and, and Paul's just incredibly practical where he's, he's down into the nitty gritty daily life of every relationship. And I, I love this because we're in the holiday season and these things matter. These th- when I talk to people, most of the time, the thing that they're talking to me about that's just killing them in their life, that's just, that's just devastating them in their life is not like, I'm not sure where I'm going uh, for eternity. That's not on their mind. You know what's on their mind? I think my wife's going to divorce me. Uh, my, my kids are just, I'm struggling. I'm pulling my hair. It, it is the practical matters that are absolutely killing people who are lost and don't understand the gospel. And sometimes that they, they do know the gospel and aren't considering it and how it should impact every part of their life. And I thought it was so interesting. Um, I had someone tell me recently in this series, because we're, we're covering these things intensely, right? We're looking at husbands, we're looking at wives, we're looking at sexual uh, relationships, we're looking at divorce, we're looking at singleness, we're looking at all these things. I had someone tell me, I just can't wait until we just go back and start studying a book of the Bible again. What? We are verse by verse walking through the Bible. Here's the problem. Here's what, here's what I think they mean. I like the Bible more when it's theoretical. I like the Bible more when it's, um, you know, just kind of something I can take some notes on, go home, have a good brunch, and it doesn't impact my life. I don't. Let me be really honest with you. That's worthless. To hear the word of God... And do nothing with it is worthless. To hear the commands of God and change nothing in my life is worthless. Do you know the demons do that? They know the Bible. They know the word of God. Satan knows scripture better than you will ever know scripture. But it doesn't change him. It doesn't impact him. It it means nothing. And so for us, we could be almost demonic in nature to be to sit there and absorb the word of God and have it change nothing in our lives. That's emptiness. That's hopelessness. Go watch football. Go join a book club. Don't do this if you're going to read the word of God and be like, that was nice, let's have brunch. It should disturb us. It should change us. It should, it, everything about our life should be impacted by the gospel. Every relationship should be impacted by the gospel. There should be no divide between the sacred and the secular. Well, this is church God stuff, and this is the stuff that I take care of. That's ridiculous. Everything is God's domain. 
everything in your life that you think you've earned, God can rightly point at and say, mine. So we're, we're looking at this practical series here in, in Ephesians, Ephesians 5, 21 through 6, 9, where Paul is looking at how the gospel and trying to teach each of these individuals in the church of Ephesus and all of us how the gospel should impact every single area in our life. In fact, we're in some sense looking at how dysfunctional it gets when it doesn't. This is what we wrote about this series uh, a few months back. Before we started it, we, we do a series brief. Like, here's what we want to do in the series. It says this. All deep human relationships were intended to follow many of the attributes of our relationship with God. One of the primary attributes of our relationship with God is that he has established it as a covenantal relationship. God has bestowed many blessings upon his children that we did not and cannot earn. This covenant is independent of our behavior and self-righteousness. God has a covenantal relationship with us. The marriage relationship is intended to be a reflection of how Christ loves the church. It is intended to be covenantal in nature. Marriage is not intended to be a relationship where benefits are earned, but rather where grace abounds and mercy is granted. Because of this, marriages do not thrive when participants attempt to treat one another transactionally. The marriage relationship is not a marketplace. It's a covenant. Likewise, parenting has deep parallels to how God views and treats us, his children. The biblical model of discipline and discipling for our children are both modeled by how God treats us. Lastly, the Christian is called to view his workplace as a place and function of worship to the Lord, not simply a way to earn income. How we work in terms of effort, integrity, and attitude all reflect our view of the Lord, not simply our employer. I'm going to go back through today the scripture that we've covered from 521 to 6.9. And I'm just going to remind you, I don't know if you've been here for all seven of the sermons in this area, but I'm going to go back through the scripture from 21 through 6.9, and we're just going to look at what we covered, main things we're trying to take away from this portion of scripture as we head into next week, which is our Christmas series. We'll start in John. We'll do John 1-1 and go through the first half of the book of John as we head toward a Christmas on a Sunday in which everyone's wearing PJs, right? Y'all, y'all ever seen a PJ suit? I might have to get one. All right. If my wife will let me. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21 says this, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ, that will be the umbrella that the rest of this text is under. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. We call this sermon, Should She Make Me a Sandwich? There is a divinely given order in the marriage relationship. As we talked about, the Bible will back this up in multiple areas across Scripture, that the relationship itself and the order of the family in that relationship comes from God. This is not something that man created. And that the order was not a result of sin. We see this same headship idea in the Garden of Eden before Genesis 3, before the fall. And that is not necessarily for our benefit, it's rather for our transformation because the 
order of that marital relationship, the idea of headship in the Christian home mimics the Trinity and it mimics how Jesus loves the church. And so we talked about how wives do this with their husbands, meaning wives voluntarily submit to their husbands, not to all men. This is not all women submitting to all men. This is not an idea of uh, submission that is because of value. This is not submitting to your husband before he's your husband, but it is because of the office or role of husband. There's a formal office of husband in the Bible, and it is unique in all of other relationships uh, other than the Trinity. We talked about how this will be a struggle because for husbands, they are responsible for the sins of the entire family. We talked about how this would be a struggle for wives for two reasons. One, because of the culture that we live in today. Um, but, but secondly, because if you go all the way back to the curse that was given because of sin, we look at that part of the curse was that wives would struggle with this idea of voluntary submission toward their husbands. They would rail against that authority. They would, they would actually, it would cause them to want to dominate the relationship. And it's part of the curse all the way back in the very beginning of the Bible. And we talked about a number of practical examples of where uh, we would apply this scripture. And uh, one of those, for me, um, the, because I'm responsible for the spiritual welfare of my family, when it comes to spiritual choices, direction in my family, that's something I take very, very seriously. And so uh, my wife, if it came to a point where we were in disagreement, my wife would submit to me when it came to the spiritual authority of the house of, let's say, what church that we would attend, where we felt called. It's never, it never has come to that because we we're making those decisions together. We're praying about those things. We're seeking the Lord together. But my wife voluntarily sets aside her right because the Bible says so, not because she has to, because she desires to please God. She desires to submit out of reverence for Christ. And, and oftentimes what that means for my wife is that she's had to let me make mistakes. She's had to let me make mistakes. That's, that's part of submitting. Submitting, you don't submit to someone because they're right. That's not submitting. That means they won. <laughs> You're submitting out of reverence for Christ, and oftentimes that is meant submitting while I make a mistake and then have to learn from it. Verse 25, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Guys, that is such a high standard. Men, husbands, the standard of if you're being a biblical husband is Christ. Just think about that and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ is the church, because we are members of his body." Pastor Vance in week two talked a little bit about the husband's role in the family and uh, what Paul is saying about that, that uh, the two points that he made that we, we took away from this were that our call as husbands is to love our wives like Jesus loved the church, 
which means it's sacrificial in nature, it's submissive in nature, it's not counting the things that I have a right to as something that, that I should attain, but rather I'm voluntarily setting those aside in order to live a life of sacrifice. And secondly, we are to love our wives like we love ourselves. This will lead us into a servant-like leadership of sacrifice. And, and uh, Pastor Vance looked at two extremes that we see as distortions of this in the marital relationship or husbands. The first of those is harshness, and the second is passivity. That when we get this wrong, we typically get it wrong in one of two ways. We become overbearing and harsh as husbands, or we become passive in which we're not taking up the, the very responsibility that, that God gave us in the marital relationship. Now, Inside of that, uh, I would just say this. This is the standard, husband. If you're, if you're wondering, uh, the, if we were trying to boil it all down to something to take away from the, the responsibility of a husband uh, inside the family and inside the marriage relationship, it's this. Does my wife know Jesus better today because of me? Just consider that. Does my wife know Jesus today better because of me? Now, some of you are going, well, yeah, Jesus was her only hope. I mean, <laughs> she married me and it was like, oh, Lord. <laughs> Ran to Jesus really fast. That's, that's, the standard is, am I living out this gospel life? Am I living out this pursuit of Christ? Am I living out this Christ-likeness in such a fashion that when my wife looks at me in my most intimate relation, human relationship that I have, does she know Jesus better because of me? That's the standard. And if that doesn't humble you, if that doesn't scare you, if that doesn't frighten you, if you don't wake up sometimes in a cold sweat and wonder, man, am I even doing anything right? Then you, you've gotten it wrong because the, the responsibility here is so high. The call is so high. The early parts of my marriage were all a struggle. And Generally, uh, generally speaking, they were a struggle because I assumed that every disagreement was a challenge in which I needed to win the argument. And I'm really good at winning arguments. And I won, I'm not kidding, I won every argument in my marriage. And I was losing the war. Can you relate? You ever won an argument and then it got worse? Try winning all the arguments. It gets really, really, really bad. And what I, what I began to realize is that that's not how Jesus lived his life. He didn't live his life walking around winning every argument, shaming everybody into his opinion. Uh, he, he won by giving up his life. He won essentially through submitting and sacrificing and humility. And so I began to think, if I'm going to win, I have to win what's important. And, I, and, and if it takes losing all the other battles, I'm going to lose all of them to win the ones that are important. So what's important? And when I realized that, what, that it is the spiritual direction of my family and the spiritual health of my family to win those, everything else is, is up in the air. Everything else I'm okay losing. And I began to lose battles on purpose because I needed to win the war. Verse 31, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. 
This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. This is week three. We spent a whole uncomfortable week talking about sex in which everyone squirmed in their pews, right? And, and we talked about a number of things. One of the things we talked about was how the church has created, unintentionally or intentionally, this stigma around sex where we don't talk about sex at all. In fact, we avoid it so much or we, 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 we talk about it in terms that make it sound like it's super dangerous and you should just avoid it because it's terrible. And, and, and in essence, what we've done is we've created this stigma that says, don't talk to me about this because it's taboo. And then we took this taboo and, and, and what happened as our kids grew up in the church underneath this, this cloud of tabooness around sex is that they did one of two things. They either figured out, I don't think you're being honest with me, and they went and searched for answers somewhere else, and we live in a world that has answers for them, and they're just not good answers. And if you're waiting for your kid to come talk to you about sex, <laughs> it's not gonna, you're like, that's not gonna happen. You have to normalize having healthy conversations with your kids at the appropriate ages, at the appropriate times. You have to do that. Because, because instead of having an awkward conversation with you, that Google answer is five seconds away. And we live in a world in which answers are ubiquitous and access is simple and they're going to ask the questions and if they're not asking you, they're asking somebody else. And we live in a world that was ready to give them different answers. And so what we watched is now generations of young people leave the church at over 80% rate. And we sat around holding on to this taboo stigma of sex, not wanting to talk about it, thinking that it was awkward, thinking that maybe it wasn't okay to talk about, well, you know, let's just, and, and, our, and our young people got answers from everywhere else, and we wonder why they think differently than us. I don't wonder, I'm ashamed of it. And so we're gonna talk about it, normalize working on it, and you should be normalizing having conversations like this with your kids. You should be ready to open up the Bible and talk about what the Bible talks about. Listen, if you're, if you're sitting there and you're censoring, and I'm not saying you shouldn't do this, but you're censoring everything your kids watch on TV down to the nth degree, and like if it has any possible thing in there, you're like, you can't watch this. Uh, I don't want you to hear about sex. Then don't let them read the Bible. Bible's got like 400 references of sex. It's not even just PG-13, like it's R-rated. Bible has wild stories, man. Like you better be ready to read that thing and explain it because it's in there. If we wanna be people of the book, then we have to be ready to talk about the, what, what this life is gonna look like, what the difficulties of life are gonna look like in the book and in real life. And so we, we opened up the Bible and we just began to read through what the Bible has to say about sex. And here's where we got with that. Of 1 Corinthians 6 and 7, Paul has to do this in Corinth because there's two extremes where they're distorting what sex is and they've gone to all the way to the edges of this. And we see some of this even in our culture today, but they did this in the first century. They ran all the way to this idea that uh, God doesn't care what you do with your body. It was asceticism. It was a, this, this whole thing that came out of Greek philosophy at that time, that the sex was just an appetite like any other, and you just, you, you just you know, dealt with that appetite, just like you would if you're hungry, you eat. If you want sex, you go to a prostitute. And that was a, a common theme in the church in Corinth. And Paul's like, no, you don't understand. 
This idea of oneness, of one flesh, is more than just physical oneness, but it is physical oneness. It's, it's, it's complete oneness. There's a mystery that the Bible says is profound, and sex was intended to bond the spouses together so that man and woman would come together in emotional oneness, in spiritual oneness, in physical oneness, and this would be a tool that would bond them together, that would grow intimacy between them. And like any tool, if it's used the way it was designed, it's productive, and when used in inappropriate ways, it's dangerous. I think the analogy I use is sex is a chainsaw. Nothing better if you had to cut a, 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 a whole tree into logs, but man, use a chainsaw in the wrong way, right? It's a horror movie. Someone in a hockey mask chasing you. Distortion number one, sex is just an appetite, the material versus the physical. And Paul says, that's wrong. That's absolutely wrong. God bought you with a price. Your body is a temple. And distortion number two was this other idea, this idea of asceticism, which is that uh, everything physical is bad. Physical pleasure is terrible. And what you really want to do is you want to avoid all physical pleasure as much as possible. So sex is actually bad and sex is dirty. It should only be used for procreation when necessary is, and, and, not, not, you know, and you should stay away from it. In some sense, we've, we've kind of given off that idea in the American church, which has been a horrible idea too. And Paul looks at that and goes, absolutely wrong. God created this as a gift for married couples to use to grow intimacy. And then he gets to my life first, 1 Corinthians 7, 3. Essentially, have way more sex than you're having. Don't believe me? Look it up. It's in the Bible. You can argue with me. You want go argue with the Bible. And we ended on this. Sex is God's gift and a tool for us as married couples to build oneness. Sex is an amazing gift from God with a purpose. Three points. Both the world and the church have wildly distorted sex. Sex is an amazing gift from God with a purpose, and sexual union is intended to mimic Jesus' desire to love us. Now, there's a section in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 where Paul kind of goes on this rant about singleness and he talks about how uh, you have the freedom in Christ to remain single to do kingdom work. Now, we read this and like, oh, whatever. And, and what we talked about back in week three was actually, this was revolutionary in that time because there was no such thing as being single in that culture unless you were a prostitute. No one was single. In fact, you got to 18 and you weren't married, something was a little wrong. And we looked all the way back that one of the Roman emperors in the first century actually created a law that if widows did not remarry after their spouse died within two years, they started to get fined. You had to be married in this culture until Christ. And then Jesus comes and he lives a single life. And then Paul comes, and we think he may have been married earlier in life and widowed, but either way, through his missions, through his writing, he is unmarried and celibate. And so Paul says, listen, there's a life of singleness, of celibacy that now is okay inside the freedom of Christ in which now because you're being fulfilled in contentment by your relationship with the Lord and then only the Holy Spirit, that you do not necessarily need to go and find a spouse as some sort of requisite, but rather pursue God, enjoy contentment in God. 
And we ended that week on this. If you're single, but you desire to be married, which is totally fine, there is nothing better in that endeavor than pursuing a white hot relationship with the Lord, because ladies, it will scare away all the boys and it will only attract men and y'all don't need any more boys. And if you were attempting to live out the Bible's commands of submitting to a husband and you married a boy, you are asking for problems. Because if I put Quentin in charge of our house, it'd be a mess. <laughs> I would be very warm from the warm-ups. <laughs> Week four, we talked about divorce, how if there's this idea of one flesh when you're married, then we understand or can begin to realize the implication of what happens when we tear apart that one flesh, which is what the Bible would describe divorce to be. It is a ripping apart of something that God has put together. And if the closeness and the intimacy of the marital relationship is such that it's so profound that it is a mystery, then tearing that apart is going to have a devastation that we can't actually predict fully. And we've seen that in our lives, in our friends' lives, in our families' lives, in our culture, have we not? The divorce just wrecks people. It just, it, it, there's an immediate pain, but there's an ongoing hurt to that. It takes a long time to recover from that divorce. Number one, divorce is never part of God's plan. Number two, divorce is like amputation. Four things about it. It's, it is sometimes necessary. It should be a last resort. It isn't primarily about your happiness and it leaves a forever scar. Now, the reason amputation is a really good analogy is that uh, it is a last resort. Why? If you went to the doctor and you're like, hey, my elbow kind of hurts. And the doctor's like, let's take it off above the elbow. I'm just gonna, you know, I'll get my, let's get the bone saw right now. We'll just, you'd be like, whoa, how about some aspirin, right? <laughs> Maybe some therapy. Amputation? Yeah, let's just, let's just take it off. It hurts, right? But, but unfortunately, we have a culture that says that. Hey, I'm not happy in my marriage. Hey, let's just cut that sucker off. What? Yeah, I'm not sure. I'm, I, I'm not sure. I think I fell out of love with them. Yeah, let's just rip that bad boy off. Man, you don't, you don't lightly remove a limb, amen? amen? You don't like haphazardly, like, what are you doing today? Oh, I think I'll get a leg removed. Like, What? Like it is a last resort. It is sometimes necessary to save a life, but it is a last resort because it leaves a forever scar. You're going to deal with the implications of losing a limb for the rest of your life. What do you do if you're in a marriage that is struggling, it is hurting? Number one, you stop looking at the sinful side of this, that's Deuteronomy 24, and instead you look at the design of what God designed this to be, which is in Genesis 1 and 2. You do what Jesus did and you get desperate for Jesus. Every time uh, someone is in a hopeless state in the New Testament, every time we read in the Gospels someone in a hopeless state, whether it's uh, some, sort of, um, some sort of medical issue, whether a leprosy, a, someone's lame, the answer is always the same. Run for Jesus, get carried to Jesus, touch Jesus, be in the presence of Jesus, Jesus, just speak a word. It is a desperation for Jesus. And there was practical application here. So it's not just to hang on in your marriage. It's also that even if you have uh, experienced a divorce or divorces in your past, we see Jesus actually walk into that and engage the woman at the well who's had multiple divorces. And he doesn't just pursue her through her defensiveness, through her deflection, pursue her to save her and to draw her in. But even through that, then to use her for kingdom purposes, he uses her in ministry work 
A woman has been divorced five times. That's how God feels about divorced people. He chases after them to use them and redeem them. And if you're, in a mar- if you're in a marriage and you're struggling, uh, we talked about this. We had a marriage conference. We had a marriage devotional. We did all sorts of things around this. We want to walk with you. God loves you and he cares about your marriage. He is a God of miracles. He is a God that has raised people from the dead, that's made the lame walk and the blind see, and he cares about your marriage. It is not hopeless. Week five, we moved on to this idea of parenting, the significance of parenting in three areas, uh, statistically, practically, and biblically. And here's the text. Uh, we started Ephesians chapter six, verse one. It says this, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Statistically, the number one predictor of whether or not someone uh, who's a child is later in adult life going to be successful, whether that's financially, whether that's contentment, whether it's uh, where they live uh, economically or demographically, the number one factor is their home life. The number one factor is stability at home with mom and dad. Outside of all other things, education, region, country, area, health, height, thank the Lord, race, stability at home with mom and dad is the number one factor. Your parenting matters. Your parenting matters. And it's hard, and you may not think you're doing a good job. Most of my parenting, I'm like, I think I'm screwing this up. It's okay. Your parenting matters. You, you have no idea the implication of your parenting. And your kids will look back someday. Remember, your, your job is not for them to be happy with you while they're eight. It's for them to be happy with you at 28. You are attempting to raise adults who love Jesus. I'm not attempting to raise children who are good at baseball. What's your goal? We talked about this. You need a parenting goal. What's your goal? What are you trying to raise? You need to know your wife, your husband, you as married couples who are doing this together, you need to be talking about this. You need to be on the same page. You need to have a parenting goal. What are we trying to raise? What are we willing to eliminate? What are we willing to sacrifice? What are we going to prioritize? These are the practical implications of Christian parenting and all parenting, honestly, but Christian parenting. What do we want our kids to be? And we will make the necessary changes in our life to get there. My wife is absolutely brilliant. You probably didn't know this, but my my wife was like a straight A student all the way through uh, school, all the way through high school. Uh, She was in like advanced calculus a year early. so So I met her in math class. I was in honors classes. She's a year younger and was in my class. Okay, she's that smart. She's a stay at home mom by choice. She also runs like three companies from the house still. Um, by choice because when we sat down and we set a parenting goal and we realized the only way we were going to get there 
was to have a stay-at-home parent. We made those choices. They were not easy choices. They were prayerful, long conversation, trying to figure out how to prioritize what we wanted out of children. You need to be on the same page. Your choices are your choices. They should be biblically informed. They should be convictional because you've been praying about them, and you should be talking about them. Biblically, Proverbs 22, 6 says, train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. How important is parenting? Biblically, it is one of the core prerequisites for leadership positions in the church. You go look at uh, Titus 1, 6 or 1 Timothy 3, 4 through 7. Look at the qualifications for deacons and elders. So what does their home life look like? What does their home life look like? Before we're going to talk about leading in the church, we're going to ask how you're leading at home. You can't lead others if you can't lead in your home. Your first ministry, I don't care what you think you've been called to, your first ministry is in your home. Hear me. You get on fire for the Lord and you're like, I got to get out and go do No, no, you don't. The first thing you got to do is lead well in your home. That is biblical. The Bible says, do not provoke. There are four common ways we provoke our children. Unreasonableness, fault-finding, neglect, and inconsistency. We covered those. It gave us positive imperatives as things we should do. Uh, Two things, gentleness and discipline. Gentleness and discipline, parents. Gentleness, bring them up, nourish them, nurture them. Implies being uh, gentle, uh, caring for them, something of great concern, of great value, and discipline. Not Not just the whoever spares the rod spoils the child verse, but... But he who is diligent to discipline, uh, the, <clears throat> but he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. The Bible says that if you love your child, you discipline him. In fact, the Bible says that because God loves us, he disciplines us. Discipline is love, is guardrails. For the Lord reproves him whom he loves as the father, the son, in whom he delights. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. Discipline is not punishment. Discipline is love. And then lastly, for parenting uh, young children, modeling over teaching, but both. You need to model and you need to teach. Both are important, but modeling is more important. Modeling is more important because if I'm living out the thing that I'm teaching my children, then they understand it's genuine. If I only tell it to them, but I don't live it, man, they know. Really, that's the definition of hypocrisy. I'm going to tell you something that's important, but I don't actually believe it's important enough for me to live by. And your kids see that. My kids see that. Listen, I I get it. Parenting is hard. I'm just telling you right now. In fact, when, when you get out of the phase where your kids are young, you forget how hard it was when your kids are young. My wife will tell people all the time, she counsels young moms, sometimes that first kid or that second kid, and they're in that stage that they, where you're just trying to adjust to it. And Mariner will be like, listen, I cried every day until I finally cried less. It's hard. It's hard. Uh, my, my kid, I have four kids. They're brilliant. They're brilliant kids. They are, man, they're smart. They're funny. And then some days they're just hard muffins. <laughs> You know what I mean. But as much as I want to disciple them and I want to discipline them, then whenever it's needed, I mean, I want to do those things. But the most impactful thing that I'm ever going to do for my kids is to live out a gospel life around them. 
which, which means that they have to see me being wrong and repenting. They have to see me being wrong and apologizing. They have to see me having an opportunity for a harsh response and being gentle. They have to see me extend gentleness and graciousness. They, they have to see the gospel lived out in my life around them at home when no one else is looking or else it's not real. You, you can put on whatever sort of church clothes you want for 90 minutes on Sunday morning and act like you got it all together in here. And you might even deceive some of us, but you will never deceive your children because they see you at your worst. Learning to live a life of dependency on God, a life of dependency on the Holy Spirit and showing that to your kids. You, you don't have to cover up your vulnerabilities around your kids. You have to admit it to them and then point to the greatness of Christ around them and go, I can't do it, but he can. And we're gonna figure out what it looks like to walk with him. That is a gospel-centered parenting philosophy. I'm a hot mess, but Jesus is here. Week six, we talked about raising adult kids. And just quickly uh, summarize and say it this way. If, you, if you're discipling adult children and um, they're far from the Lord, this was the question, in fact, that, that came in for us that Pastor John was answering. Uh, what do you do with adult kids that are far from the Lord? How do you disciple them? How do you, how, how do you, I mean, you're praying for them, you're praying for them, you're praying for them, you wanna see them come to the Lord. Uh, here were the points. Tell them what God is doing in your life. You may not have an opportunity and they may not be receptive to you hearing, to hearing you tell them what God should be doing in their life. You tell them what God is doing in your life. Apologize. The power of a genuine apology is unparalleled. Amen? Man, you think winning an argument is powerful? Genuinely apologizing is powerful. If you don't think it's powerful, I just, want you to, I just want you to consider that the one thing that is necessary for salvation, for life in Christ, is repentance. Apology. The one thing you could do, you, can't, you cannot earn salvation. Uh, salvation is a free gift. The one thing that you do and when you put your faith in Christ is an apology. If that's the key to the Christian life, then why are we so resistant to apologizing in every other area of our life? Adult children, you tell them what God's doing in your life. You apologize wherever you, you find uh, it necessary, what it needed. And then the question was, how long does it take? Only God decides that. Only God decides that. You're consistent, you speak the truth to them and you love them well. And then last week, we covered this, Ephesians 6, 5 through 9. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord. Whether he is a bond servant or is free, masters do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is with both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. Uh, Pastor Vance uh, had a couple main points last week about this uh, topic, and that's this. Number one, our work matters to Jesus. 
not just to our employer. Our work matters to Jesus. Work existed before sin. Work existed in the Garden of Eden. There was work. So before the curse, before uh, work was meant to be hard and you would struggle against it, before sin, before Satan, before any of those things, there was work and it was good. It was part of God's plan. Faithful service will be rewarded. And this idea here that it's this, there's not meant to be a divide between the sacred and the secular, meaning your work is worship to God. Don't you hear that? And here's the problem in in American culture and in other cultures, we we have this weird thing where we think... um, Work is in this bucket and church life is in this bucket or Christian life's in this bucket and, and there's this somehow there's a divide between the two and I can kind of manage them being in different spots, but that's this is not how the Bible talks about this at all. How you work matters to God. You are a royal priesthood. That's what the Bible would say. You're a royal priesthood. If you've been saved by Jesus, you're a royal priesthood. So so there's not clergy and then you. There's royal priesthood. So so I am today a a pastor for the kingdom of God, but if you change tires, you're a mechanic for the kingdom of God. And if you're a school teacher, you're a school teacher for the kingdom of God. And if you're a stay-at-home mom, you're a stay-at-home mom for the kingdom of God. And if you're a mailman, you're a mailman for the kingdom of God. You understand that, that there's no divide In whatever area of life you've been called, there's no such thing as a secular area of life anymore. Not for us. We have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Everywhere you go, God is. You're the light. Wherever you go, you take the light. You don't leave the light at home and go, I'm going to work today. You take it with you. You take the salt everywhere. You don't ever want the salt to not taste salty. What happens? It's useless if it does. You don't ever want to blend in. You never want to be at work and be like, I'm just like everybody else. With God in you, you are? No, you're not. Not anymore. You've been bought and purchased. You've been redeemed and crowned. You'd put a ring on your finger, sandals on your feet, and a robe over you. You're God's son. You're not like everybody else. Why would you want to be like everybody else? I was worrying a little bit. Uh, years ago, I, uh, I went to, I, I started going to this new gym where you, where you all work together all the time. And I did it because I just started to realize that around my life, everybody that I knew that I spent any amount of time with was already saved. And it started to really concern me and worry me because I had my little small group and I had my little church and I had my little work and everybody was saved. And I was like, I, where am I going to find non-Christians? And so, so I, I started going to this gym and, and let's just be honest. It's a, like you walk into a CrossFit gym and you're like, okay, no one's saved. Clearly. And, and I was like, but I, I, got, I got access to people's lives and, and I began to talk to them and then they began to ask me questions because I didn't live the exact same way they lived and there was clearly something different. And so I got a conversation after conversation after conversation after about three years, there were 12 people from that gym that started coming to church. And, and I was like, okay, God's doing something here and when God's moving, that's God showing you that he's at work and when he shows you that he's at work, that's his invitation for you to join into his work because he doesn't need you, but he gives you the privilege of joining him in his work. And so I'm like, I don't know what else to do to be more involved here. So I went and I got certified to be a coach, started coaching so I could have more conversations and then I bought the gym so I could have more conversations and then it's been like seven years and I'm realizing like, I haven't had any conversations in like weeks and I don't know if I'm doing enough and then I got someone who's like, hey, so 
someone texts me and they're like, hey, uh, a couple of people kind of complaining that you were like uh, saying too much about Jesus lately. I'm like, yeah, I'm back, baby. And I was like, thank you. And they're like, why are you thanking me for that? And I was like, you don't even know. Because salt's supposed to be salty. If you couldn't taste it, we got a problem. Years ago, I, um, I worked in the business world. All I, I only came on vocational staff at the church last year. So I've been a, what's called a bivocational or a lay pastor my entire career of being a pastor for about 10 or 15 years. And so I've always worked in, the, in secular industries and I worked in the business industry for a guy who was really uh, a tough guy to work for. Really tough guy to work for. And uh, I remember um, people telling me, man, you need to leave. This guy's, this guy's really abusing you and he's taking advantage of you. And you know, you need to leave, you need to leave. And I just felt like the Lord wanted me to stay there and stay there and stay there. And it was like years. And then I finally, the Lord is like, okay, you can go. And then I couldn't find a job. And so he knew I was gonna leave. And so he made it even worse, got really toxic. And uh, I remember just being really frustrated with the Lord. Like I, I waited, God, until I felt like you told me I could go and now there's no jobs. Like, yo, you're not holding up your end, you know? You, know? you ever feel like God owes you something? That's dangerous. <laughs> and uh, I remember finally breaking one time when he was just giving me the business for the umpteenth time and, and just kind of yelling back at him. And I'm driving back from LA. I'm on the grapevine. I still remember it was snowing. And I remember the Holy Spirit say, hey, remember that one thing you said? Remember when you, when, you, when you snapped back at your boss after 25 insults? And I was like, yeah. And he's like, was that Christ-like? <laughs> no. How about all the other stuff? He's like, he's not even saved. Well, we ain't talking about him. We're talking about you. <sighs> so I call him on the grapevine and apologize, dead silence. Uh, 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 how do you respond to that? Guy's been a, purposefully a jerk for months now and I've made one comment, I have to call him and apologize. Hey, that was inappropriate to me, I need to apologize. Had no, had no words for like 90 seconds of silence. I thought I lost the call. Finally, he's like, okay. But, but in time, and, and, and God took me in another direction, away from that job and other things, but in time, uh, what I have realized is that the, the business place that I'm in, the, the, the industry that I'm in, is so void of Christians that now people call me still to this day to just give me work and give me business like, like ravens are bringing a prophet some bread or something. These people out of the blue will call me to bring me stuff. And I recognize the hand of God in that because of how he had to grow me and transform me in hostile workplaces for the gospel to get me to the point that I'm at today. I'd have never seen that then. I could never see the hope of it then, but in the rearview mirror, God's hand of providence, of working his work to arm me with skills in that workplace to then bring into church ministry was unparalleled could see that. What I had to do was faithful believe that the things that I read in the Bible were true and live like God was worth it in the workplace. All of this text 
from 5.21 all the way through 6.9, all of these areas of the implication of relationships, of the gospel in our relationships and how they should touch our relationships really extend to this. And I, and I want to explain this because this is going to matter a great deal. If you don't understand verse 21, uh, if you can go back and find uh, chapter 5, verse 21 and put it up, just leave that up for, for a minute. If you don't understand the implication of verse 21, you'll never understand the implication of the gospel in relationships, including church relationships uh, and every other family relationship, and that's this. The idea of mutually submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. In, In the body of Christ, in a local church, there is a list a mile long of the things, if you sat and thought about it, that you don't like here. Like you could just, if I gave you enough time, you could be like, I don't like this. I don't like your haircut. I don't like those sneakers, right? I don't like this music. I don't like that. You could just, you could make a list. And in fact, you could probably make chapters to that list. I mean, it could be a big list. Or you could begin to live out what this idea of submitting to one another looks like to where all you see is the goodness of God. And it's really simply a perspective change. It's really kind of how uh, Americans struggle with this all the time, right? We have Thanksgiving and we live in, in such real luxury, if you, if you consider it, that really we should just live this life where we're just always thankful for all the things, but we don't live that way. If, if the gospel's true, if the gospel's true, okay, if Jesus really died and if he really rose again and, and, and we're really in, indwelt with the Holy Spirit in our lives that is, that is transforming us and changing us through, through the context of the local church and of our relationships, if that's really true, then what should be happening in my life is increasingly as I age in my maturity in Christ, you should see more and more and more fruit of the Spirit. You should see more love, more joy, more patience, more gentleness. I should increasingly be more of a magnet, more of a light that people want to be around. Have you ever met somebody that was just increasingly as they got older, bitter and more bitter and more bitter and more bitter. You ever met someone like that? And you go, man, I'm not sure I want you to tell people you're a Christian. Because if you did, if you told someone, hey, why don't you come experience some of this? People are like, uh, I don't think that's attractive. I don't think people want the bitterness that you're exuding. In fact, here's what I would ask you. If if you find your life um, defined by this increasing dissatisfaction with others and other things, I would ask, do you really know him? If you really know him, then what's going to happen? This is what the Bible tells you and this is what I've experienced in life. If you really know him, you're gonna get sweeter and sweeter and sweeter and softer and softer and softer. And your heart is gonna melt for people. Your convictions and endurance will strengthen, but your heart will soften. If you find that your life is characterized by bitterness, increasing bitterness, I would just tell you, back up for a minute and consider what Christ has done for you. If we took the gospel and we applied it to our relationships the way the Bible tells us to, those relationships, though difficult, though oftentimes requiring a great deal of effort, will get sweeter and sweeter and sweeter because that's what the gospel does to things. It softens them and it sweetens them. And to live a life in Christ will be characterized by voluntary submission 
submitting my desires, submitting my preference, submitting my opinions, submitting my rights to others for the glory of God out of reverence for Christ. Do you know him? Do you know him? That is a real question. Not do you know about him? Do you know him? Because the demons know about him, but they don't know him. Do you know him? Is he your Lord? It's my question for you today. Because if he's your Lord, he will touch every relationship in your life and every area of your life, and he will leave no corner for you to hold on to. Here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna actually participate in communion today. So at, at the same time, I'm gonna ask the prayer team and the elders to come up. Uh, we wanna pray with you. If there's an area of your life that you feel like you have, you have hidden off to the side and you've let God deal with most of your life, but man, this one area of my life, I don't want God to touch that. I don't want to surrender that area of my life to God. I, I'd love for you to come up and just give that to God today and allow him to take control of all of your not life, not just the parts that you wanted to give him. And if you don't know him and you want to know him, we would love to walk with you through that. We'd love to talk to you about what the Bible says you should do as next steps to make him Lord of your life and then walk in the light of that truth. As you're responding, we're gonna play this song. And then when you're compelled over the course of the next few minutes, I want you to get up and go get elements for communion, uh, the wine and the bread. And we're gonna participate in that in just a minute. Uh, our elders and prayer team will be up here to pray for you. You move as the Lord leads you. We love you.